This is the Sergio Rodriguez Show. Welcome, everybody, to the Sergio Rodriguez Show, a show unlike any other. A bit under the weather today. This this time of the year gets everyone at least once or twice, and it's got me. It's got me a little bit under the weather, but not enough to knock me out of commission to not do this show today. This is special for me as a guy who's coached softball for 27 years at the high school, college level, and travel ball level. I felt that in speaking to a lot of people, a lot of people are struggling post-COVID with, if you could even say we're through COVID, um, with the recruiting aspect and a lot of the situations that are coming up that are a little bit different than they dealt with before for their kids with recruiting and softball in general. So today, I'm going to have three Division One coaches on to help us discuss this. Right now, joining me is Bridget Orchard, the head coach at Villanova, who I met some 20 years ago at Fordham University when she was Bridget Baxter. And uh, she's always been there as a friend and always been there to give advice. Bridget, how are you? Doing great. Thank you so, so much for having me. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. You know, we we go back. I remember meeting you in 2001 when you got the job at Fordham. And, you know, let's start there. That was an impossible rebuild at the time. I remember when you got that job, uh, me and my former friend, uh, Anthony Lorezza, may he rest in peace, we we drove there, um, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm not say. oh man! And I remember looking at a booklet there, and you guys at that time Fordham had won, like we're averaging like ten wins a year for the first seventeen years of the program, and then you left that program, and I mean in seventeen in the seventeen years you were there, won over six hundred games. How did you do that? Because that was a tough turnaround. Um, a lot of help. You know, like I say, I, I guess blessed um, people like yourself and Coach Lorenza and kind of held my hand and led me and taught me a lot. And I had great players to come in, which is obviously what we're talking about, a lot of recruiting. But um, I'm just lucky. I mean, it was a great school, um, great academics. You know, the athletics were picking up. Kids wanted to be in New York City. It was a great So My brother played basketball there, so I kind of knew the school. I knew what it could bring. I knew kind of really what they can do for kids after college there when they're getting jobs, getting out, and obviously being in the city. And then, I, you know, I started, and I just got some great recruiting classes, and then they started recruiting other great athletes and competitors that really got it off the ground. And then we started getting more funding, and we built new facilities, and they put money into it. We were traveling, and we were playing the best of us, and Again, it really goes back to the athletes. Like the girls I had just brought that program, like you said, kind of from the ground to the top, the way they worked, the way they committed. I mean, they taught me, I think, more than I taught them. But it was just just cool, really cool to see and kind of see how, how it progressed. It doesn't feel like 17 years. It was like, oh, we did, you know, it wasn't there that long. But obviously, I don't feel that old, but I am. <laughs> and I remember you and Coach Lorenzo coming and umpiring our inner squads and <laughs> wearing catcher's gear. And we really did whatever, whatever, whatever it took, you know, I, I was super young and naive and just kind of 
flew by the seat of my pants and just tried new things. And, and I think it was cool. And the girls kind of learned and taught. And I think that's kind of one of the biggest things is that we were kind of willing to do whatever it took. You know, we were there, we were grinding. I mean, getting you guys over there, putting gear on you, umpiring games. When you think about it now, I just laugh because we just did some crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so then you, you, you leave to Villanova, your alma mater. Was it a tough decision because you had already built the program and Fordham had become home? Or was it an easy decision because you were leaving to a place where you had spent and, I don't know, became a young woman, you know? I think, I mean, it was definitely was tough. It definitely was tough. I mean, it was, it was time for me to move on, but um, my family was the biggest thing. It's always obviously number one to me. So at the time, my boys were seventh and eighth grade and my daughter was third grade. So my daughter was fine, but the two boys being seventh and eighth grade and moving them, I think was harder than me even worrying about Fordham or Villanova. It was like, how am I going to bring these middle school kids out of New York and take them to Philly? They did not want to go. <laughs> it was the worst. And I almost left the one there because he wasn't going to move. Um, but obviously everybody said, oh, kids are resilient. They'll be good for it. And it's been the best move we've ever done. And, and they're thriving. And they love it here now. And they have, you know, friends in New York and they go back and forth and we're not too far. So that worked out good. But I mean, from the work atmosphere, softball wise, you know, I thought, you know, we kind of did what we did there. And I was excited to come back to my alma mater and try to do what we did at Fordham do that here at Villanova. So it was, it was thought as a challenge. And I was like, Hey, we can, we can tackle this. We can get this done. And obviously playing here, I met my husband here at Villanova. So moving back here, his family's here. Was, that part was kind of a no brainer. Um, and I just saw this kind of similar things that I saw when I took the Fordham job, like, Hey, you know, we can, we can make this better. We can, we can get it to where it needs to be and get it to be a nationally recognized program and get good recruits in. And it's similar academically. Obviously the area is a lot different than Bronx, but far as like the size of the school the academics the future that they get it was, it was very similar so for my recruiting mindset we couldn't really recruit like sell the success which we were doing at Fordham but we could sell you know the academics the jobs you're going afterwards the family atmosphere the small classes so that part was pretty similar how have you gone about recruiting in 2021 that's so different than you did back in 2001 when you first started at Fordham in reference to the amount of teams that are out there with players, identifying oh, players, right? Um, yes, yes. It's, it's great for the sport because, like you said, there's so many teams, but it's also bad that as a coach or even as a player, it's just there's so, so much. And compared to what we did back then, and I'm like, oh, everything was double elimination, and, you know, there was – every played on one field and now you're like, Oh my gosh, it's complexes that are an hour away from each other at the same tournament and teams and letters and emails and virtual recruiting. And it, there's just so much. And there's so many, so many good players, which makes it easy, I guess, because you know, you're going to pick four or five, but at the same time, you, you can't see them all. Um, you can't evaluate them all and you do get overwhelmed. So you have to be you know, really organized and prepared where I feel like, you know, back in 2001, you went to the main field, you watched those teams, you, took some kids and now it's like it, it just isn't like that at all anymore one of the biggest complaints that i get from our student athletes is that they don't hear back from college coaches through their emails or respond you know they don't get that response to the right. email how do you go about trying to reply to everyone because i'm sure you get inundated with with emails i'm bringing in Jenny Allard after you from Harvard and 
when I reached out to her to do this, you know, we spoke a little about that and she talked about just getting in, in, in upwards to 200 emails a day. How do you go about trying to reply to everyone and, and making sure that you give at least two or three minutes to each email because you really never know who's going to be the kid that's going to affect your program, right? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think that's the toughest part. And some of it is, again, like the emails you get, they don't identify themselves. Like we always tell kids, obviously, like our camps or if we're doing recruiting things, like you got to put your year on there, your age, because we can't reply to recruits if they're, if they're under, if they're not their junior year. So you kind of, you see them, you're like, okay, what year are these kids? And you make, you're like, oh, I can't reply back. And sometimes you just, you don't. And then you realize, oh, wait, I could have. This kid's a 22, you know, she's a 23. I can recruit. I can reply back to her. Um, the 24s, 25s, you, you can't. So I think that gets tricky for us coaches. And definitely I'm guilty of it as anybody of, you know, getting an email. And it depends where you are at the time. You know, like you get it and you're reading in your car. You're like, oh, and then sometimes you're home and you have nothing to get right back to people. So, I think, again, it comes on to organization and kind of dividing up between your staff. So myself and my two assistant coaches saying, okay, look, we're going to tackle these emails. We'll get them, make sure we get back to them. And we do read them all. I always tell kids that too. We are reading them. Uh, we may not reply, but we, we, we do get them. We read them. And a lot of times we're like, again, you said that I could see that frustration. And some of the student-athletes just not knowing. So we have to tell a lot of the 24s. And like, we, we get them. We read them. We can't reply back to you. So we're not allowed to. And so I think that some of them might not know that and they're kind of like, Hey, you know, I reached out or, you know, we'll get calls still. So we can't, we can't talk to you. And we used to be able to, if you called us, we could talk to you. Now we can't. So I, I think it's tricky. I mean, we are having trouble following the rules. I can't imagine, you know, new high right. school kid understanding all the rules or coaches and we're like, wait, it's contact period. No, it's not a contact period. Oh, we can recruit on Friday. No, we can't recruit on Friday. It's like, a lot of people now are like, Oh, we didn't see it at our game Friday. I'm like, we're not allowed to. Right? That's confusing. Why, why can't you recruit on Fridays? Division ones can't recruit on Fridays, but twos and threes can. So they don't know the difference. You know, they see coaches, and I think that kind of frustrates them a little bit too, and and us as well. I'd love to be able to get out there and see them as much as we can. But definitely the texts, the emails, the Twitters, the social medias, and still trying to keep up with that as I get older. I'm like figuring it out. It's lucky that I have three children that can teach me some of that stuff. But um, it's it's definitely hard to like you said, give the attention you need to, to every one of them. Cause you have no idea which one's going to be your next all American, you know, and you you miss it and you go, Oh man, that kid did reach out to me. And you know, I never got back to her. One of the things that I always felt was an issue in New Jersey with, uh, and, and, and I'm not only just going to say New Jersey, I'm going to say some of the other local division one schools was that I felt that they spent a lot of time recruiting West of the Mississippi. If you look at your roster, you're a predominantly East Coast uh, team. <laughs> Why is it that a lot of teams in the area tend to go away to recruit? And in my opinion, they're taking second and third tier players from there in a lot of instances. Not always, but in a lot of instances. And which, in my opinion, are just as good as what we have here. And I think that one of the reasons why you've always had a great culture is because you've always had parental support. And when you have a team like when you have a, 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 a sport like softball, unlike basketball, which is always traveling and stuff like that. And you go out and you have 12 players, you get the best that you can. I'm sure Jay Wright, your head basketball coach there could care less where he gets his 12 players. But I think it's important 
for a program that's a non-revenue sport like softball to have a community support, a, a, a family support. And I think that you've always done that well, right? You've always had kids close mm-hmm. in the area to get that support. Speak to me about your roster makeup and how you go about doing it. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely by design. And, it, and it's funny you say it because I think I get a lot of criticism for doing that. Um, you know, and people ask me, you know, why don't I recruit California? Don't I like Arizona? Why don't I go out west? And um, it's simply it sounds like what you said. It, it just has to do with that family and parent support and fans and the girls being close to home and everybody being here, me getting to watch them play. I like to watch our girls that we have coming in. And that's where COVID hit us hard too. Is I like to watch them play a lot, see them and meet their families and have them come to our games. I'm going, I go to their high school games. I was up in New York. We went to a lot of high school games and watch these kids play. Those same kids end up coming with me to Villanova. So I think that for me, it's the connection, it's the relationships. And it's hard for me to connect a relationship with somebody on the West Coast. I'm just not there enough. I don't see you enough. I don't know your coaches. I'm big, as you know, with, you know, getting to know their coaches and their coaches give me feedback. And I've been lucky and fortunate enough to have a nice network of coaches in the area to shoot me straight. They say, no, you cannot get her. No, she won't fit. Yes, she fits. And, and I've been blessed and lucky with that. So I, I trust the coaches in the area to help me out. They know my style. They know my fit. This kid's going to work for you. This kid's not. You got to look at this kid. I don't have that network or relationship out West. So it doesn't really work for me because I haven't, I haven't had it. And I don't have anybody that trusts to, that knows my style or knows what we're looking for. And then like you hit on that family support, like it's awesome. Like we came to our games and we're filling, we're like getting a new stadium because we literally sell out. We can't, we don't even sell tickets, but the seating just is full and it's family and friends and grandparents. And they do tailgates after the games and before the games and we have get togethers and there's 300 people there. And it's because the girls are all driving distance, you know, for the most part. I mean, we do have some West coast and they're, amazing as well you almost feel bad because now they can stream it and they can watch the game but it's like oh man i know that they'd love to be here supporting their daughter and watching in person and and they can't because it's just too far yeah and and that's the one thing that that uh, again it just jumps out when you do your when you do your 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 rosters I, i it's something that i've always noticed and 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 as a local coach, appreciate it, right? Because I felt mm-hmm. like our kids always had an opportunity to play a, a, at the better program in our area. You know, the mm-hmm. the when you go to these tournaments and you have now, one of the things that's happened over the last couple of years is that you're getting a lot of franchise programs, uh, travel teams in the East Coast with the West Coast organizations or tied in. How do you go about identifying and separating, you know, obviously there's only one heist. We are with, and we're simple and we've known each other forever. But if you go down, let's say to Texas, to the Ronald McDonald tournament and you're sitting there and there's a, a heist, you know, San Antonio, how do you react? to that or if you see the heist do you have to do more homework now to identify who you're watching because it's it's got to be so hard for you guys now no I, I think that's why selfishly you know i have kind of and again i've been criticized for it but i um kind of stuck to what has worked for me and what i've been successful with and the kids that i get in and a lot of them are like you said from the same travel programs not just one but you know we have like you know five or six coming from different organizations but 
we've had success with them. We get to know them. We know when we go watch a game, they can almost tell you everybody on their team and where they're going, what they do, what they play. And, and it's just, I know that team where if I go down to Ronald McDonald, I see, you know, a team that I haven't heard of. I don't know if they, if they would come East, are they academically, you know, I don't know anything about these kids. So it's so much more homework. And I have to dig and try to find stuff about that one. I can go, to the teams in the area and, you know, right, make one call and they can say, Oh, you know, she can't get into your school, you know, or she's looking to go, you know, big, big school, you know, don't, don't waste your time. So, okay, great. You know, or they, yeah, this kid actually, she's under the radar and, and she's looking at Villanova. She wants to go to a small school and she wants to play in the big East. You're like, okay, great. Boom. Let's do this. As opposed to really just trying to throw a needle in a haystack. Hey, let's see if we can get this kid. If she has any interest in, and believe me, I've been coaching long enough. I've tried it. I'm like, you know what? we're going to do this. We're going to go out here. We're going to go get these big teams that we've heard. We'll grab a kid there. And, and for me, it just hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. Um, and we always kind of go back to our roots and say, you know what, let's go to what has worked for us. And again, me personally, and everybody's different. That's what I had success with. So I'm like, Hey, I like this. I like these kids. I like their families. You know, I get a lot of trust, a lot of respect. And nowadays I think the biggest thing in coaching you feel bad for some of these young, young coaches, because it's, it's a tough world to get into right now. It's just really, really hard with what's going on in the world. And you really got to get these kids to trust you beyond playing on a softball field. Like not even anything to do with that. Like half of our job is like, you know, we spend like 10% on the softball piece. <laughs> the rest of it is everything else. So if you don't get along with them, if they don't trust you, they don't respect you. If you don't know things about their families, if they can't tell you what they're thinking, you're just not going to enjoy it. You're just really not. I think the more that I've had a family now with my kids, my oldest is 17 now, which is crazy. Um, so I have 17, 15, and 11. And now I get what it is like to be a parent and kind of have these girls. And I realize I have the parent perspective now. So it definitely gives me an idea of like, okay, now I know why these parents are upset or they're angry or what they want to do. And it's their kid. So you want them to know you're going to treat them like your own. Now that I'm going through with my own, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I get why sometimes they may be a little overbearing, <laughs> but but I get it now. You know, you've been driving your kids to practices for 17 years. Of course, you're going to want to come watch their game. You're going to be upset or disappointed if they're not playing. Or, you know, you want to know what's going on. Where when I first started coaching and met kids, I'm like, what are these parents still? And I mean, geez, like, now I'm like, I get it. I'm that parent now. <laughs> so I definitely, definitely have that piece as well. Last question. How's the Big East and softball looking moving forward? You know, they've had <clears throat> the one thing about the Big East is that it's really had a revolving door of success, right? There, there's been a lot of teams that have had their their hand in, in, in the success of the league. I mean, I know DePaul's always been good, but I'm talking about uh, locally, there's been an opportunity for everyone to, um, you know, to do their thing. How's the Big East looking? How did you find it as opposed to when you left it in the in the mid to late nineties? <laughs> I know. I still feel like it's like the mid and late. I'm like, oh wait, they're not in our conference, which is so UConn just got added and they're amazing. They're great program, awesome facilities. I mean it's kind of one of those programs that we're all kind of striving to be from a you know facility standpoint, a budget standpoint. And it's it's just so cool that they're back in. But when I played, that was our rival. Like they they beat us all the time. That was who we that we're always trying to you know, battle and battle with a rival for us. So when they got back into it, I was like, oh, this is just normal again. Like they're, they've always been a rival. I was like, oh, they're new to the conference. I'm like, no, they're not. But again, that was <laughs> in the nineties, it was UConn, Boston college. Those are our rivals. And now Pitt. remember Pitt. UConn's back in. Yeah. Pitt. And it was strong, very strong. 
I mean, Rutgers was in there when I played a little bit there a couple of years. But so now it is really cool. Like, I love the Big East. One of the things we like about it is everybody challenges each other. Like you said, everybody's getting better. and Anybody can be anybody in any given day. So we don't really have, I feel like, like a top and a bottom. It's like, hey, at any given day, any of these teams are going to beat each other. So it makes it really cool if our top four go to our tournament. You have no idea who they're going to be. You really don't. And you kind of predict and guess. And like, oh, I mean, teams we lost to last year didn't make the tournament. Teams we beat made the tournament. And, and it kind of goes up and down. St. John's had won the regular season a lot. And DePaul came in and really started crushing it. UConn came in last year, made it to the finals. You know, Seton Hall he has a new coach. They're all, you know, always picking up, always trying to do new things. So I feel like it's just really cool. Providence, they got a great new facility up there. So it's, it's definitely, I think, up and coming, you know, and the teams are just almost kind of where you get to a team and you're like, okay, you know what, like every team we play is going to be a big game. Before you say, oh, this team, you know, we got to get ready. And it's like every weekend in our Big East Conference is going to be big games for us. Bridget, I appreciate you more than you would ever know. I appreciate you coming on and um, taking 20 minutes of your busy day during – your softball work day, right? To uh, to come yeah. on and, and 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 speak with us and educate some people on some of the uh, stuff that are that's going on right now. No, absolutely, it's my pleasure. Obviously, when you call, I'm like absolutely. You name the time of the day, I will be there as much as you guys give back to our, you know, the softball community. It's just so cool to see that. Again, you're still doing your thing after all these years. <laughs> you, just, you just aged <laughs> <is> me. Crazy. <laughs> I know. Did I, I'm like thinking, I'm like, you know what? It, it is crazy to think back how where, where we got started and where we're going. And it's like, wow, it, it, it's still going. And it, it is still going really strong. And it's just really cool. And I'm grateful for people like you. Guys, that was Bridget Orchard, the head coach at Villanova. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you. Always great to have Bridget Baxter on, one of the coolest people that you will meet if you are a softball aficionado. And I appreciate her so much for jumping on. And joining me right now, someone that I'm going to embarrass here because this was the 1989 Big Ten Player of the Year. It's funny because it's a Michigan day here, even though we're not going to have on the Michigan coach because Jenny Allard from Harvard is joining me right now. And I'm going to have Angie Churchill popping up next after her. Coach Allard, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Did I embarrass you with that 1989 player of the year? Yeah, that that was a while ago. You're you're dating me. Hey, listen. (laughs) It, it, the dating the dating shouldn't matter because the fact is that the records are what they are. No one can ever take that away from you. That is a, that's a very true statement. <laughs> 311 wins during your tenure at Harvard since 1995, and that's where I want to begin. So in 89, you're the player of the year in the Big Ten, and six years later, you're the head coach at one of the greatest, if not the greatest, academic institution in our country. Take me back to that 20-something-year-old who first got that job. Sure. Like, my, my journey into coaching is, is one that's very, you know, different. I think we all have our stories about how we got to where we got um, in terms of professionally, but... 
I had graduated from Michigan in 90 with a degree in uh, accounting. So I moved back to Southern California where I was from and was working for a big, uh, at the time, a big six accounting firm and was doing auditing work and just had a hard time really sitting at a desk um, and chugging out long hours. I don't mind working long hours, but I discovered that I need to move more and be more active. So after I left the firm, I worked for my dad, who was a small business owner, and then I had the opportunity to volunteer at a high school and coach, and I was helping with the JV program and assisting varsity. And then through a slew of events, um, I ended up getting a second assistant position at the University of Iowa. Then I was promoted the next year to the first assistant, and someone um, in the profession encouraged me to apply for the head coaching job at Harvard. And here I was, 25, and now found myself, you know, running the softball program at Harvard. So it's been an incredible journey since then, but that's how I landed where I landed. Once I got into coaching, um, it was the right fit, and it just kind of took off from there. So within, you know, three years, here I am a Division One head coach um, at a pretty remarkable institution, as you mentioned. Um and it's been just a wonderful journey ever since. And I, I have stayed. I have loved the young women I have the opportunity to work with on a daily basis. Um, I have really enjoyed uh, the balance uh, academically, athletically here, where I feel the priorities for these student athletes are grounded in academic values and what they're about. And I feel that you know, the softball field and all that we do supplements their education and gets them to grow in different ways. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my story. And I think as a 25-year-old becoming a head coach, trying to figure out how to run a program, how to really elevate the program, which is what I was hired to do, I was the first um, full-time uh, softball coach here at Harvard. And, you know, I think I, I've grown a lot. I've learned a lot. And now sit here, you know, looking back at all the years, you know, with a perspective of how much the game has grown, how much the game has developed. And I'm very excited, you know, as we kind of pivot from post-COVID to get, you know, back into it. Because last year we were shut down. Correct. How hard was it to look those kids in the face and basically say, no season? Well, I mean, I... Obviously, it was it was difficult on, on so many levels for so many people, and I think I think the students understood. Harvard did a really remarkable job communicating their their decisions and understanding why. And I think when you appeal to the why of we're doing what we're doing and to understand it, um, I think. People, the students had a, a, an easier time understanding why this was happening. It was difficult in this season when their, you know, friends that they had played with and grown up with were playing and having a season, and, and they were not. Correct. I guess and I that's think that was, was the most difficult. Yeah, yeah that was difficult. What, yeah. That was difficult. There's no question. A lot of our students actually pivoted and took the year off and got work experience, got internships. And the students that decided to stay enrolled and continue their academic careers um, uninterrupted, I think had had the hardest time because if you pivot and do something different, you could get consumed with that. 
And although you're missing your teammates and missing your training, when you're enrolled and you're still a student and you don't have the full-fledged athletic experience, you really felt it deeper. So we did a lot of things to pivot and have a virtual season um, and do meetings. And, you know, there was a lot we could do with our mental game. There was a lot we did with, you know, clips of games that we were watching and things like that. So, you know, we, we tried and did our best to stay connected. And we just kept reminding the students that, you know, this is temporary. This is going to end if you're going to be back. And how would you want to be when you come back? And so that was the motivation for them to continue to put the work in. When, when you're at a, at a program like Harvard, which recruits an elite level type student, when, how do you go about making sure or identifying that these kids qualify to, you know, academically be able to do the work, right? So is there a timeline that you guys hope that kids take the SAT, the SAT buys, is there a, a time where you feel, you know, they should have a certain number of course load already taken? How does how does the process with the recruiting for you guys identifying uh, a Harvard type player work for you guys? Uh, that's a very good question. I think that um, one of the difficult things in recruiting, and we've done a better job as a coaches association, is we're getting the recruiting process closer aligned to what the application process would be. And for us, that was huge. So there were prior, prior to passing the recruiting calendar that said you couldn't um, commit students until September one of their junior year, you know, students that were freshmen were committing and sophomores were committing. And, you know, here you have, you know, a situation where, you need to be evaluated by an admissions committee here at Harvard based upon what you've done in high school. So we're not committing students that were freshmen who haven't taken, you know, barely starting their freshman year and haven't taken any high school classes or sophomores. And people have to really understand that this junior year is a pivotal year. It's usually the first time many students will take an AP class. They've made it take an honors classes. Some students don't even allow students to take an advanced placement class or an IB class, international baccalaureate class, until their junior year. So you're trying, the, re, the way you assess whether or not a student can handle the academic rigor of Harvard is based on past performance in high school. So the transcript is really critical in our evaluation. The actual classes they've taken and how they've done. And as the classes get more rigorous, your freshman year, you know, a lot of students have come into high school and done well and have all A's, and then they start to take honors classes. And then you see students who cannot handle that level that they did as a freshman and getting all A's are now maybe trickling down and getting a B or two, which is still really solid performance. And then when you go into the AP level, you're seeing students then who's taking those APs, like you know, students are self-selecting whether or not they can take those high-level classes, number one. Correct. So that weeds out a lot of students. Number two, how are they doing in that high level? And that's the assessment you have to focus on. So the scores are important, but what's more important is their track record during their high school career. And the junior year is really critical. So, you know, you'll see 
the Ivy League really trying to evaluate and stay with students during their junior years. And they might choose, you know, to, you know, offer the opportunity of support in the application process. But really that junior year is critical. And if a student doesn't do what they need to do, they're not going to gain admission. They're just simply not. So you really have to, as a coach, in answering your question of a institution at Harvard, you're really wanting to make sure as you're evaluating the student, you know, where they are in terms of obviously softball skills and your needs. Obviously that's important, but the most important thing in the baseline is, is the student a good match for the rigor at Harvard? And have they proven with the classes they've taken and the test scores give more information that they would, you know, handle the rigor academically. Because if they don't, if they come here and they're not, they're overwhelmed and they're not handling that, it's going to affect their time management. It's going to affect how they, what they have to devote to their academic athletic careers. So that's really critical. So the answer to your question is we need time to evaluate that. Correct. Um, so the earlier and the better. That's, yeah. So, well, we need time. So, but if, you know, their junior, September 1 of their junior year, we have two years to go on academic information. So if a student has two years of high school academic information to present to us, plus a score maybe they've taken after their sophomore year, what we're doing at that point is extrapolating where they may get to through their junior year and taking the test again, potentially. So is the score helpful at the end of this sophomore year? Certainly. Is it necessary? No. Um, but it's helpful. And how they're doing their junior year and what their progress grades are fall of their junior year, you know, cause we also want to remain competitive with those schools that are also offering students early in the fall of their junior year. But we have to extrapolate how the student's going to do throughout their junior year. Correct. Correct. Let me ask you a question because this is something that I thought about as, as you were talking there, the, with you, with, with the division one schools not being allowed to recruit uh, and it kept on getting delayed and delayed, you know, uh, after COVID. Sure. Yep. You, you guys at Harvard, you, you, you recruited a lot against a lot of high academic division three schools also, right? Because a school like Tufts, a school uh, sure. like Wash U, Emory, they were out there recruiting. Do you think that it affected the, 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 the recruiting for you guys when, when, when everything opened up again? Yeah. Here's, here's what I found that happened in the recruitment um, for what is this class 2022 is that, yes, it affected recruiting. It was very difficult to pivot and go online and try to make, you know, some decisions on students and follow students when you couldn't really see them in person. So really what happened, I felt like with the 2022 class was, so back up to a year ago, you have the 2022 class, you did not see as many commitments in the fall of 22, uh, sorry, in the fall, the last fall, the fall of 20, 20. for the class of 2022. So those juniors, you didn't see as many commitments in the fall. Because coaches were waiting. Coaches had more time to get to know those players. 
they used the summer. So quickly we're shut down, you know, spring of 20. We have to pivot and watch games online in the summer. We're watching games online in the fall. Students did a wonderful job of sending us more video clips and things like that. A lot of coaches said, wait a minute, I would like to wait and really see if recruiting will open up next summer and then get on the road and make decisions about the 2022 class. So that's what I found is that there were a lot of coaches who quote unquote normally would be done with recruiting and would have had made decisions if they were recruiting last summer in person and in the fall in person and they, we weren't. So everybody just took a little more time and at least there was a group of students that were committing kind of later in June and into July once, once colleges got on the road again. So that's what I found happened. And then now moving to this fall, we're seeing tons of commitments because everybody was out all summer. Correct. So that's where I felt it was affected. And there definitely were students, unfortunately, that, you know, my heart goes out to them that we couldn't get out and see them. They couldn't come to us and get to a camp. You know, they were communicating and sending video. They were doing individual, like, workouts at their house, hitting off a tee. They were doing going to a park. They were doing whatever and, you know, wherever they could to keep their skills fresh. I was actually really impressed by the students during COVID that when we got back on the road, that they looked good. Like, they didn't look like they hadn't been training. But you got to remember, just because we weren't allowed to get out didn't mean that they put the, didn't put the work in. They did, which was impressive. When you go to a school of high academic, you know, there is a different grind in terms of time management. And speaking to players of mine that have gone to Ivy League schools to play, when they come back to speak to our current team, they always speak about time management. Give me a breakdown of what a day of a student athlete at Harvard is during your season. During our season. During the season. Um, yeah, I think, well, obviously it very much depends on the day, but, you know, let's take a, a, a Tuesday where normally we might have a midweek game or a practice on Tuesday. Um, so the students on, on those days would be getting up in the morning. Some of them like to work early in the morning. They might be getting work done, organizing what they need to do, going to classes in the morning getting, grabbing lunch, heading across the river, going into the locker room, training room if they need it, and then either dressing for the game or changing out into practice clothes for practice, going out, either playing our game at home or potentially traveling. If we travel, we typically leave, you know, around, let's say, one o'clock to go play a local opponent. Um, if we are fortunate to play BCBU, if we're traveling down to Rhode Island or Providence, we might be leaving, you know, 1231. Um, if we're home, we're usually out at the field by two to play a four o'clock game, let's say. Um, and then afterwards, they come back into the locker room, they shower, ice, do what they need to do post-game or post-practice. If it's Tuesday and we're practicing, they'll get a lift in. Usually we'll, we'll lift on Tuesdays. So we're not too sore lifting on like Thursday, Friday for the weekend. So we'll go out and run practice 
you know, uh, most of the students are able to get down and across the river for practice by 3.30. Um, you know, we might start extra hitting work at 2.30 and do an extra hour of work with students who can get out, who don't have class until three, let's say. Um, so students would be down anywhere from 2.30 to 3.30 to practice till 5.30, transition into the weight room, get done with the weight room, you know, shower, ice, and then head up for dinner and then study. And then they get to work and they hit the books and they, you know, get their work done. And then they get up the next day and do it all over again. Um, we like to give our students a, a day off midweek, which is usually Wednesdays, so that they can schedule labs and afternoon classes. So typically when we're in season um, and play on the weekends, we'll have Monday mornings off, um, or if we're preseason training, we'll train Monday mornings. That way they could take afternoon and lab classes on Monday and Wednesday afternoons. And then Tuesday and Thursday, and Friday, we have longer practices in the afternoon, Correct. plus lift and conditioning. So that's what we try to do and structure our work. Wow. I mean, that's that's a full slate. Speak to me about the current state of the Ivy League uh, heading into the 22 season, uh, your current roster, and any camps that Harvard might have going on coming up going into the winter days. Sure. So I think first with the Ivy League, we're just obviously thrilled to have our students back, uh, getting them back into the speed of the game and, and playing as a team. I think we're just all thrilled that, you know, the season will be robust and, you know, we're excited to, you know, have that level of competition and, and camaraderie as well. So I think we're all just really looking forward to the conference season and everybody's, you know, getting their students back and training hard in the fall. One of the things we were fortunate to do is we increase normally the number of games we play in the fall. So we normally play just two double headers and we increased it to the maximum allowed, which is four per the Ivy League rules. And that really helped our players. So um, our team was excited to have more games this fall. They felt like they really needed it given the time off. They're thrilled to be back on campus working together uh, the state of our team is I have a, a large team. I had um, several upperclassmen, juniors, and seniors take time off um, and pivot and not be enrolled last year. So then I have a, a strong kind of returning slate of players. Um, what's interesting in the league is this is a, a point of trivia that next year or this next spring when we open and play our conference games, there, the Ivy League teams will have three classes that have never played an Ivy League game. Wow. Because we were shut down in 2020, so those students didn't play an Ivy League game. Our first years last year didn't play an Ivy League game, and then we're going to have our first years this year. So everybody's so a freshman. Have, <laughs> everybody's a freshman. Well, a lot of them are freshmen. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, three of your four potential classes are first years when it comes to the Ivy League conference season. So, uh, that's going to be the state of the Ivy League, um, and it's going to be, you know, pretty exciting and pretty enthusiastic. So that's number one. Uh, my team, again, speaking to that, is that we do have a larger squad because we didn't have any students graduate last year. Those students we had as seniors took a leave, so they would come back, and they wanted to finish being in residence at the college, and that was their decision. 
so having an elevated squad is going to be something kind of new to manage. But I think the team has done an unbelievable job this fall. Um, and as we head into spring to have that depth, it's going to be an asset. Um, upcoming camps, clinics, uh, we're looking at potentially adding something the first weekend of December. We'll have our annual winter camp on January 22nd. Um, and we do that camp purposely in our bubble, which is our indoor training facility. They put a dome over the football stadium, and that's where we train in the preseason. And we have a camp in there so students, especially who are from warmer climates, and any student who's really interested in our program understands, you know, the high-level facilities we have in which to train even in the midst of winter. So that's been um, a great camp for us. And this year it'll be on Saturday, January 22nd. We'll have it up on the website by the end of the month. And then we're considering another camp, more of a skills clinic um, in December. And that, if we can get uh, the space and the approval to do that, we'll have that up as well. Coach Adler, thank you so much for popping up with me today, but also for always taking my phone call. You know, you really don't have to do that. I know I'm a pain. <laughs> You're wonderful. You you grow the game. I think you have great messaging with your students. I think you do things the right way, so ha- happy to always take the call. Thank you. That was Jenny Adler from Harvard, and I appreciate you. Uh, joining Thank you me, for having me. No problem, Coach. No problem. And joining me right now, one of the coolest human beings you will ever run into in our business of softball, the great Angie Churchill, the head coach at Seton Hall University. How are you, Angie? I'm great, Sergio. Thanks for having me on the show. I don't know about the coolest person, but I appreciate that. Well, you're cool to me because I don't call. I don't call many people. And you're one of the people that I do call, so I consider you cool. I, I appreciate that. And the, the feelings are mutual there. <laughs> hey, by the way, so you know that you are the second best player from Michigan on my show today? Oh, wow. Because I had... Who's, who's the first best? <laughs> Jenny Allard. I had Jenny Allard on oh, the show. Yes, Jenny Allard is amazing. Yes, Absolutely. Us in Michigan loves, man. I love it. You know, it's funny when I I saw that, I said, man, what what am I doing here? Is this a Michigan show or is this a, <laughs> a, a Division One recruiting show? What am I doing here? <laughs> Could be a combo of both. Amen. Amen. 11 years as a head coach, Angie Wagner, Hartford, and now Seton Hall. You've come full circle. Tell me how your first couple of uh, months at Seton Hall have been. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely, you know, been around the block, I guess. <laughs> um, but, you know, I love coaching. Um, my Seton Hall has been great to me so far. Um, it's been a great transition. You know, obviously, um, a lot of universities are still transitioning from COVID protocols and still trying to rebound from that. Um, so it's been good. You know, our kids are working hard. You know, we finally got to play a full fall season again, which was fantastic. I never really realized how how much, you know, I appreciated fall until we didn't have it. So, you know, the fact that we were able to play again in the fall and, and have pretty normal practices again was, was fantastic. And I think 
you know, the kids really appreciated it, but it's uh, been a great start at Seton Hall for me. How do you think the recruiting is going to differ from your time at the other two places, which are considered mid-major <clears throat> programs in, in, mm -hmm. in terms of um, basketball, right? So they get, they get right. labeled and that label sticks uh, to yeah. now being at Seton Hall, which is, you know, very known league and with a very known brand. How do you think the recruiting is going to differ? So I think we'll just attract uh, a little bit of a bigger, bigger recruit whom we might be able to steal from like a power five conference or something like that, because, you know, Seton Hall is a, is a, you know, kind of worldwide brand name and we are a basketball school, but everyone kind of knows it. So, you know, and our academic programs are, are very high. So, you know, I think we'll be able to attract that, that type of kid to come here and, you know, take a look at our softball program, like really take a look at the school and think, see if it's a good fit for them, you know, where I don't have to sell Seton Hall so much as in the past, I'm trying to sell the whole school and the whole package that, you know, I don't really have to do that here, which is a great. And I think we'll open up our recruiting a little bit more. So I'm excited about that for sure. And, you know, the Big East kind of sells itself too in, in kind of all all sports. So I'm excited about that. If I'm a 15-year-old softball player in the state of New Jersey and I want to get recruited to Seton Hall or really anywhere, right? Because you can, you can, you know, Seton Hall, like we said, is a name brand, right? You're going to be able to go get players everywhere now. And you want right. to get recruited to Seton Hall. What is the first thing that you would recommend that I do? So the first thing is you gotta you gotta get your name your name out to our coaching staff, right? Or any coaching staff for that matter. That you know you gotta narrow down to your top five schools because if you're just sending blanketed emails to a hundred schools, like you're gonna get overlooked. You know what I mean? And the biggest recruiting mistake that I see people make, and I say this in all the camps and clinics and recruiting talks that I do is you have to put the work in. Like I get like a day, like tons of emails. You have to put the work in. And what I mean by that is personalize it. Take the time to research the school because if I get a dear coach or, you know, spelling my name wrong or something like that, I, instantly delete it. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't have, there's so many emails I have to get through that take the time. Like if you put my name, my school, our mascot and no one, one little bit of a fact about me, I'll, I'll click on your video. You know what I mean? Like I will at least be like, wow, that kid did some research. She put the time in. I'm at least going to look at you, see where you're playing, and I'll write your name down. You know, like those little things stand out to where, like, so many kids don't do that. They just blanket copy and blanket send it out. And, you know, if you want me to put time into seeing you, you need to put the time into getting my attention. And that's the biggest mistake I see with kids is they just rush through sending out emails because listen, there's no magic. Hey, do this and people will come see you. It's there's no magic formula for that. Cause that's probably one of the questions I get asked the most is like, how do we get on coaches radars? Correct. 
and there's there's no magic formula like do this and this will happen. You know, you have to stick with it. If Seton Hall is one of your top five schools and you love Seton Hall and want to come here and they have the major you have, keep sending me emails, but personalize them. And, you know, because like, listen, we're a new staff and this, this happens all over the country when, when coaching changes happen. Like, I don't, I might not know you yet. You know what I mean? And you have to stay diligent. Like, listen, don't send me one every single day, but you know, like maybe once every week or once every other week, sending me your schedule, telling me something about you that you're doing again, personalizing it, but do the work because that, what those things will stand out. You know, one of the things that I tell our high kids when they write to coaches is to make sure that in the subject line, they put the New Jersey heist gold on it. Yeah. Right? Because I believe that we're a name brand in our area, right? Locally with the schools mm-hmm. and with the coaches that I've had the pleasure of building relationships with. How do you handle now with so many teams locally right there's about a thousand teams in new jersey alone right yeah and and at least correct right and they and a lot of them operate you know so a lot of local teams operate almost like franchises so they're not really a a a, a, so in in our program for example i'll I'll speak about our program is the only one that i really know everything a to z I handle everything from 12 and under to 18. Everything goes through me. But when I speak to other coaches of other programs, they only handle their own team. Even at tryouts, right. they're getting their own players. So it's almost like they're franchises. They have names of teams, you know, from down south, out west. When you get this now, when you get these emails, and how hard is it for you guys with so many teams? And I asked Bridget, who I had earlier on the show, the same question. How do you guys go about differentiating, hey, you know, what is, who is this, who does she play for, et cetera? Yeah, that, and that's a great point because, you know, the recruiting game has changed so much from even like five years ago because exactly to your point, like someone can say, hey, I play on, you know, the New Jersey whatever, and there's 20 of those teams. And I'm like, well, which one are you on? I mean, that's where, like, in the, like you said, in the subject line, you know, if you put your graduation year, the position you play, and the team you play for, but, like, if you play for New Jersey High Sergio, you know, 18U Gold, then great. I know exactly who you play for. Like, if there's a, you know, title with the name that you play for, because, the harder the coaches have to work to find you, the less likely we are going to be able like, to go see you play. You know, Because if it's like, hey, I play for you know, the New Jersey Heat and there's 40 of those teams, I'm not going to do the work to like scout out which Heat you play for, what schedule you are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the easier you can make it for us of like, hey, I play for New Jersey Heist, Sergio's team, Here's my schedule. Here's the fields we're playing at. Here's the address and make it as easy as possible for us to find you again. And then you personalize the email. It's the more likelihood you will be to get someone from that school to at least come look at you or get on the list to look at, you know what I mean? So 
Um, because the, the, the travel teams have, there are so many now. It's crazy. It's wild how it's working now because they are like franchises. And I'm even seeing, you know, different like, you know, hot, like high end teams go like their names are in Pennsylvania and Illinois and stuff. And it's, it's like they are franchising and it's crazy. Yeah. And that's why it's, you know, listen, I've always said, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you can call the players on the Yankees, uh, on the twins, the Yankees, they're still the twins. I mean, it, it, it doesn't really, you know, just go with the name that you have and, 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 and do the work. It's still the same thing. Right. Um, right. The players that you had at school that had the option through COVID to come back for a for an additional year or two in some instances, how has that affected recruiting? Because I know it affected the kids in the 22 class, definitely the kids yep. in the 21 class. How, how, how have you been dealing with that? So that's been really tough, honestly, because... <clears throat> Um, when that, when that happened, and obviously I, I think that the NCAA obviously had to do that just for the fairness and the kids with obviously this, this being a, a crisis pandemic, right? And, you know, just to try to give the kids that full college experience. But I knew, I had said that, I go, this is going to affect the next five years of recruiting. And it probably hit the hardest for the 22 class, honestly, because the 21s, like most, a lot of them had already signed like NLIs and they were done and good, you know, and there was some exceptions made for that class because you had to honor those, but also let people, if people wanted to stay that next year to do it, the NCAA granted a lot of waivers with that, but the, the 22, 23 I think you'll start to see it calm down a little bit in the 24 class, but 22s and 23s really um, are getting hit hard with that because, you know, a lot of people can plan out having people stay that extra year. And, you know, like some people will, some people won't, some people are still deciding whether they want to do that, seeing if it works out in their specific major. So it's just like a lot of still up in the air recruiting for, for a lot of us because, you know, we don't know if certain kids are going to take it. We don't know if they're going to stay. We don't know if we'll have that money left. So it's been like a tough road to navigate because a lot of people will be like, hey, are you still looking for the 22 class? And I'm like, maybe, <laughs> you know, I don't know if we have a couple more spots or one spot um, to see how it pans out um, with that and how it's going to work. So it's been a tough road to navigate and I think it's just kind of taking it, you know, year by year and see what you got. And, you know, that's why I keep telling kids like, don't close the door on anything yet because you never know, like things might change in three months, six months. You know, if you're, if you're still not set on where you're going to go, like try not to panic. I know that's really hard to do <laughs> for some kids, yeah. but um, you know, a lot of people's situations will change in the next, you know, four, five, six months. And like a lot, there might be spots open later down the line, line that you might not think it, that'll be true this year and next year. So, you know, I think for the 22s and 23s, it's just, it's, it's going to be a nervous road to travel, but you just, you have to try to stay patient. 
two, two more things on players. One of the things that has affected the uh, college, um, the college landscape has been the transfer portal, right? So now you're getting, mm-hmm. and, and I, I was told by a college coach that there were like over 800 kids still in the transfer portal right before you guys started school this year or this semester. That's mm-hmm. number one. So if you could speak about that. And then the other thing is that one of the, um, I don't want to say complaints, but one of the questions that I get asked all the time by by some of my players are coach, but but they have five middle infielders. I try to explain yep. to everyone that that a talent that that a positional log or a talent log at a position is not something you worry about because eighty five percent of the players that I've sent to college have not played the position that they played for us anyway, and you probably won't even play that position so how do you deal with that in recruiting also so if you could speak about those two things i'd appreciate it mm-hmm. yeah the the transfer report at one point in the early summer like around june-ish there was 1200 kids in the portal for softball there was 1200 kids in the portal it was the portal has turned in to just craziness and it, it's hard because it, it now it gives it gives kids and you know recruits like they aren't I feel like there's always that plan B for for kids that like oh well if I just don't like it I'll just get in the portal you know and there's that and and you know also on the flip side of that it's like as soon as people have faced some adversity they're like looking to transfer you know <laughs> it's like it's tough to navigate that because, you know, a lot, like if you look, talk to like a lot of people don't come in and necessarily like start right away. Like you've got to put the work in, you've got to get better. You've got to perform when, when the, the, you get your shot, your shot, you know what I mean? And, and, and that's in practice, that's in games, that's like everything, you know, in the classroom, all the whole package of it. And like people like first sign of adversity, like, get scared and look to transfer like the the transfer portal has turned into just like you know (laughs) almost like free agency honestly like like who can I go to next so you know I would just, just tell kids honestly to like be wary of that because my personal opinion on the transfer portal is you know, if I see a kid in there after like one year, now listen, there's some cases where, you know, someone went far away or like maybe a family member got sick and they want to be closer to home or, Hey, you know, because of COVID, like financial things have changed. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's some situations where it's like, okay, they want to be closer to home or they, you know, want to be near family or something like that. And if that's the case, I'm down with that to talk to kids. But if it's just like, they didn't play and they're looking to go or they're, you know, like hated their experience. Like I typically pass on those kids because, you know, that's a red flag for me. And I know like a lot of other coaches feel that way. So don't, you know, be cautious of just jumping into the portal because again, 1200, 800 kids, are just not that many universities or colleges to go to, you know? 100%. So and if, especially like how, what I mentioned before, like with kids taking that people just don't have the money either to be like, here you go. Here's some money. 
to transfer in. And the, and the other biggest thing that I see kids not understand is you will get, especially like high academic kids, you will get so much more money you're coming in as a true freshman than ever transferring somewhere academically. Like the, the money's just not even close. So that, you know, I would caution kids for that unless you're planning on getting a ton of athletic scholarship. They just don't, they don't have that. And like, again, especially for the at least next couple of years, like a lot of schools won't have what they think they'll have. So I, it's funny because I, yeah, I tell parents all the time that the money's in the academics. Yeah, not the athletics. The athletic, the the, no. the athletics is a means, is 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 a tool, but not the means. The means is the academic financially. Absolutely, absolutely, especially like schools that can stack money. You know, meaning combine athletic money with academic money. Like you're probably going to get more there, and then that also saves like. Like we can stack money, and I, a lot of schools can stack money. Like that's a kid I'm looking for because then it saves. Like with one scholarship, I can get two good kids instead of just one w- with stacking money. So like that, that's a big thing for a lot of university and colleges. So get, get the money you need to bank on is your academic money, and then you know hopefully add on to that for a lot of kids and then be able to put together a pretty solid package for her families. It's, speak, it's speak definitely to me, worth it. Speak to me about the, the, the positional talent, the, the positional log that do you yeah. get that question a lot? I do get that question a lot. And you know, like people will be like, Oh, I see. Like you said, I have like, you know, four middle infielders and, and uh, you know, for me, like if you're an athlete, we can teach you another position. And that's why I also tell kids like, listen, don't get fixated on just being the best second baseman, like play short, play third, play the outfield. So you know it, because guess what? Like, you know, I was a shortstop when I got to college, I didn't play shortstop. There was an all American shortstop. And, you know, I knew that that wasn't going to, at least for one year, going to be a thing for me. So you have to know other positions. And if you're athletic, weak, and versatile, and open to it, you'll play other positions. And I've asked kids that on when we have them on, on visits. I'm like, you know, are you open to playing a different position? And, you know, their answer to that will depend a lot on how we move forward. Because if you just want to play one position and, you know, like I said, we have all conference, whatever, and we might pass because you're not open to playing another position or willing to like learn a new position. And a lot of people don't, you like, you you might move around a little bit. So it's like tough when people just get stuck on one position and like, you better be the best third baseman if that's the only position you're willing to play. (laughs) And that's tough. Speak to me, speak to me about, coming into the big east now it's a new league and you know what are going to be some of the challenges outside of just learning the players and 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 the rhythm of the league uh how do you feel coming into the big east well you know i i'm excited about it that's for one thing the big east is a great conference and you know i think it's definitely you know, a very competitive conference and really like a conference that's like on the brink of like being competitive in regionals too. And like winning games in regionals and, and being on the brink of like, 
winning a regional and and that's like i'm excited about that and it's also like we got to do our work you know because there's a lot a lot of good teams in this conference it's not like you know we're coming in and it's like okay you know everyone's kind of rebuilding or there's half the conference is rebuilding and we're trying to get in like everyone's growing and building and there's a lot of great coaches in the big east and and we got to we got to come in and start to establish first that we're going to be competitive and then try to continue to work our way to the top. So, you know, like my, my our goal is to win a big East tournament championship, you know, and a big East championship. Like we, I know we can get there, but we got to put the work in. And honestly, like we got to believe that we can be there because our conference is good and it's going to be good for a long time. So you know, I'm I'm ready for the challenge. I think our kids are excited about it, and um, I'm looking forward to see what, what we do this year. Coach, you're the best. Thank you for popping up for a couple of minutes here and 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 sharing, you know, your wealth of knowledge. I mean, you you were a player that played at the highest levels of Division One softball, and obviously coaching there now. So your information is invaluable. I appreciate you having me on. Your show is great, Sergio. Anytime, I'm more than happy to come on. <laughs> I want to thank Bridget Orchard from Villanova, Jenny Allard from Harvard, and obviously my friend Angie Churchill from Seton Hall. And don't forget that you've been listening to the Sergio Rodriguez Show, a show unlike any other. <laughs>